1: um, I'm happy to be here with you this morning. My name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here for now. Um, come on. That's pretty funny. Uh, uh, so, um, uh, a couple things as we get started. Sorry. I love seeing little kids run on the stage. Uh, good morning. Um, uh, so number one, if you're brand new here, um, grab the Connect card in the seat in front of you, the little white card that says Radically Inclusive Hope. Um, if you would fill that out and put it in the box on the right as you exit, it's our way to know to pray for you. It's our way to know like, how to text you and just reach out to you and say, hey, we'd love for you to become part of our community. How do we help you? Um, help that happen. We're not going to like super pastor you. We're not going to add you to any like annoying lists. Uh, Nobody will show up on your doorstep, nothing like that. Uh, But the simplest way to get plugged in, even just a little bit, if you're like, hey, I want to give this church a real shot. Sunday mornings are important to us, but the thing uh, that really constitutes us as a church is life beyond Sunday mornings. And the easiest way to step into that is starting with the connect card. Um, Number two, if you're not in a hub group, uh, we care about hub groups. They've been hard for the last couple of years. Um, Help us make them easier. Let's figure out how to live life together, encourage each other well, love each other well. If you're not in a hub group, um, fill out a Connect card, say hi to somebody, say, can I come to your hub group? Um, Let's figure out how to really be community and the loving people of Jesus for each other. Okay, so um, let's jump in. We're gonna jump into Acts chapter nine this week. So Brandon started us in a new series um, last week on the book of Acts. I started to call it the Gospel of Acts, but it's not the Gospel of Acts. We have the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then the fifth book of the New Testament is Acts. Um, Acts is also written by Luke, the author of the Gospel of Luke. Um, What we started doing last week was um, noticing that, Acts starts with this phrase of, now, O Theophilus, in the first book that I wrote to you about all that Jesus began to do and teach, and Brandon suggested that if all that had happened in the gospel was we saw what Jesus had began to do, or had begun to do, then the strong implication is that Jesus remains at work. If we see all that Jesus began to do, then the assumption from Luke and the whole rest of the early church that might separate them from us in a pretty significant way is that Jesus continues working. When we look at the gospels, we see the beginning of Jesus' work. We don't see all of Jesus' work. We don't see everything he ever did because he continues working even here and now, even today in 2022 in Houston, Texas. So as we kind of look through this lens and then ask questions about, well, we're going through some major transitions as a church. What's it going to look like for us to remain a healthy church, become a healthy church, be a healthy church with and for each other? How might we do that? And I think the suggestion of this series is... Jesus remains at work if we will cling to him, if we will continue on in his work together with him, not just in his like memory, not just in his vein, but like with Jesus, with living, active, resurrected, powerful, actual Jesus. If we will do that, then we can't lose, right? Clear eyes, full hearts, Coach Taylor. Okay, so, so, so let's talk about this for just a second. Um, I think one of the most important things that we can do for ourselves, whether in work or personal life or as a church, is define the concept of winning, right? Like Charlie Sheen, hashtag winning. Um, that's a really dated reference now. Um, anyway, uh, I think it's really important for us to define the concept of winning because I think so much of our life we are basically, in one way or another, trying to figure out how to win. We're trying to do the things that we do successfully. Right, so in my personal life, I'm trying to be a good husband and good father. Like, I want to win at fathering. I want to win at husbanding. I want to win at friending. Like, being just a good friend. I want to be successful at that. I want to win in that. Right? Maybe that's not the way that I couch it all the time, but in a deep sense, this is what I'm doing. I have some sort of idea of this is what it means to, to live a good life, to live a right life, to live a successful life, to live a fulfilled life, to live the kind of life that Jesus wants me to live. Like We, we, we couch it in a number of ways, but all of them boil down to I, I want to win at personal life. And then in my professional life, I want to win in my professional life. This has always been a challenge because um, from the very earliest days of redemption, being a church planner, being um, together with Todd, one of the ones who founded this church, people always ask me, how's the church? And sometimes I'm like, I have no idea how to answer that question. Well, what do you mean how's the church? Like, are you asking, are we like a mega church? Well, no. Are you asking if we have like, all the money we ever hoped and dreamed of? Are you asking if we have influence broadly in our city? Like, well, what are you, what are you asking when you ask me, how's the church? And, and sometimes they ask me, how's the church? And maybe it's just my cynicism that, that mishears and hears other people asking me questions that they're not asking. Maybe, but, but sometimes they just straight up ask, so are you growing? So so is is the church bigger this week than it was last week? I'm like uh probably not. Um but but there there is this question of of how's the church and being a pastor, my goal, my like um burden, my uh psychosis, <laughs> like, like my, my twistedness, my brokenness, my obsession, my whatever, is something to do, not with the church being big or sexy or influential or any of those things, but, but there is something of, I want the church to win, I want, I want the church to be good, I want the church to succeed, I want the church to be what Jesus wants it to be. And, and, I, and I guess my point in this, whether we look at personal life, or professional life, which for me is also church life, but for you, maybe those two are separate. And as we look at all these various areas of our lives, how we define winning really matters. How we define winning determines, do we think we're doing a good enough job? Like, can we just like, can, can I take a nap now? H- have I won enough that I can finally take a breath? Am I doing a good enough job where I don't have to like feel guilty? Have I lived a good life? Right, right. Whatever these kinds of questions that we ask, somehow all boil down to winning. So I I love this morning's passage in Acts chapter nine um, because I think we have funny ideas about the early church. Like when, when when you talk about what does it mean for us to be a good church? What does it mean for us to be like a really healthy, thriving, beautiful church? I think most of us don't think, well, we need to be as big as, Lakewood. We, we need to have our own TV program. Once we're that, we are finally a successful church. I mean, not, none of us that's sitting in this auditorium thinks that's our definition of success. Instead, I think most of us think something along the lines of, well, if we could just recapture what the earliest church had, isn't that like our real definition and picture of what it means to win as a church? And Yes, I actually, I like this a lot, but I wonder when, when you just said that, you didn't know you said that, but you did. When, when you just told me that your definition of what it meant to be a good church was to go back and be like the very earliest church, the Acts church, what, what did you have in mind? What was the Acts church actually like? Well, let, me, let me reread you the passage that Dana already read to us as we open the service. Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 28. Saul was with them moving about freely in Jerusalem. This is right after Saul has been converted. Speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord, he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews. But they were attempting to put him to death. So Saul is converted. He's in Jerusalem. He's preaching about Jesus finally, instead of trying to kill Jesus' followers. He himself is a Jesus' follower. And now he's arguing with the Greek speaking Jews of Jerusalem, and they keep trying to kill him verse 30 but when the brethren what a terrible translation when when the siblings when the brothers and sisters who make up the church when when they learned of it and it's only a terrible translation because it's so old school and like I don't think I've ever used the word brethren in my life other than in like churchy settings but when the brethren learned of this fact that the hellenistic Jews were tr- kept trying to kill Saul they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus verse 31 So, the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up, and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. Okay, now I got us a little bit of a running start there with verses 28, 29, and 30, and I want to go back to those because those do set our context. But what I really want to harp on today is verse 31, which is still here up on your screens. Um, and I'm sorry if you're on the live stream, I just realized I formatted these uh, wrong and you're just gonna have way too many lines, you're gonna have like lines up here, maybe you can't read the whole uh, text. Anyway, it's Acts chapter nine, verse 31, my bad. Um, but, But here's the deal, this is a summary statement and sometimes we pull these summary statements out and they color, rightly so, what we think was happening in the Acts church. Now, this is a major important verse. This isn't just like a fly-by verse. This is one of the pieces of the skeleton of Acts, right? So here's what I mean by that. It's a a piece of the skeleton of Acts because in chapter 1, when Jesus has just been resurrected and he's appearing over a period of about 40 days to all of his closest followers— And he's continuing to teach them, and he's about to ascend and uh, be disappeared by a cloud. And the angels are there, and they're like, Hey, why are you looking for Jesus? Like, he's up in the clouds and he's going to come back just as shockingly as he left you. Um, Right, in, in that chapter one, one of the last things Jesus tells his disciples is Hey, I need you to hold on, I need you to wait, I need you to pray. And at the right time, God is going to pour his Holy Spirit out on you in power, and you are going to be my witnesses, and he names in a number of locations, in Judea, in Galilee, throughout Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Right? So we have four locations there. We only have three here. But structurally, what's happening here in Acts, in late in chapter 9, is Luke is saying, hey, I've been telling you what my story is. My story that is this book, the Acts of the Apostles, is I'm going to tell you how the gospel of Jesus is spread in Jerusalem. In Judea, well, in, in Judea, which is the state that Jerusalem is in. In Galilee, which is the state next to that. and Samaria, which is the state in between these, which is not quite for Jews. It's for Gentiles as well, or at least for um, the Samaritans who are not full-breed Jews. Okay, so, so point is, uh, what Acts is doing is it's talking about the spread of the message of Jesus among the original Jewish followers of Jesus who become converted to the ways of Jesus. And then all of a sudden, this percolates out from Jerusalem to its surrounding state. So it'd be like saying, from Houston, it spread through all of Texas. And then it went to Kansas, and oh yeah, it also went to that no man's land of Oklahoma in the middle, right? This is what Luke is saying with Judea, Galilee, Galilee and Samaria. And in chapter one, he starts with these three and then says, and it also went to the ends of the earth. So what we're going to see from chapters 10 through 28 through the end of Acts is we're going to see what does it look like for the gospel to go to the ends of the earth. And we're going to see um, the, the church in Antioch uh, like rise up. And then we're going to see Paul head to Rome. And we're going to see this message spread to the ends of the earth. Okay, here's my um, belabored point. This is a summary verse belonging to the skeleton of Acts that is structurally important to this book. Okay? So what, what Luke is doing here is intentional, it is well thought out, and it is important. Nevertheless, when we take this out of context, and we're like, so we want to be like the early church. What was the early church like? You're like, I don't know. They had peace. They were built up. They walked in the fear of the Lord, so the fear of Jesus. They had comfort from the Holy Spirit and they multiplied. They increased. Like their numbers went up and up. My contention is we remember this summary statement in a very different way than Luke experienced this summary statement. When we forget the context that this has just come out of, then we entirely mishear and miscolor and mischaracterize what's happening in this summary statement. It's not that Luke mischaracterizes what's going on, but when we look at the context and then we come back and we read verse 31, it completely changes how we hear this. When we look at verse 31, I think basically we hear, oh, wow, things went swimmingly easily for the early church. And that's just not at all the case. Can, can I give you all just a real quick summary of what's happened in uh, the book of Acts to this point, since I haven't preached like 11 sermons to show you what's happened in Acts? Can I just remind you? Right, so Acts chapter 1, Jesus leaves. Jesus leaves. I mean, it's it's a good thing, but like Jesus is gone. Jesus is up in the sky. He's like disappeared from them. Now, Acts chapter two is awesome because after... Jesus leaves, um, they do wait and they do pray and then God does pour out his Holy Spirit in power and all of a sudden there's like flaming tongues. Everybody's like, who are these dudes? What are they talking about? Like, are they all drunk? It's like really early in the morning, what's happening? And then all of a sudden, um, there's the first sermon from Peter on the day of Pentecost and he preaches and there's like thousands of people converted and things start in a really beautiful way. And we have these summary statements of uh, there, there there were no more poor people among them and that's not because they put a sign at the door and said, no more poor people. That's because they actually put their stuff together and said, hey, we're not gonna abide having anybody like, that's in need because there's enough of us and there's enough to go around and we're gonna share. Like, we're really gonna take care of each other. And they started taking care of each other in this beautiful sharing, like, actually loving way. Like, in, in this way that actually has something to do with the ethics of Jesus. And they start t- taking care of each other in this, like, beautiful Acts Church way. And then all of a sudden we see some, like, miraculous healings and some, like, uh, people who are, you know, starting to walk who have never worked, walked. And so we, we see some of the high points, and you guys remember some of the high points, but, but what starts happening, at least by chapter 6, and then particularly in chapter 6, chapter 7, and again in chapter 9, is things are not good. Things are not good at all in the early church. Well, Maybe they are, but it probably depends how they define winning. Well, what, is it, what does it mean for things to be good in the early church? Because we get this story about in, in the midst of this beautiful sharing, everybody saying, hey, I have more than I need. You have less than you need. Take some of my stuff. There's this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, who show up and they're like, we have more than we need too. Take it all. And they're like, look at us. We're so amazing. We're so godly. We're so Jesus loving. Take it all. Except they're, they're like shady about it. They're hypocritical about it. They They lie about it. And apparently God kills them for it. Uh, there's, there's all sorts of questions and craziness here. Um, I think this is actually Acts chapter 5. Um, I, I said it was 6, but there's craziness in 6 too. But here in Acts chapter 5, the church is so unhealthy, there's so much hypocrisy in the early church that apparently God is killing people for it. Then in chapter 6, what happens is there's like very blatant racism going on, right? Because the whole church exists in Jerusalem, all the followers of Jesus at the very beginning are Jewish converts. Now, what happens is there's a difference in like the real Jews and the Hellenized Jews right? So the Hellenized Jews are the ones who who have adapted to the ways around them. They probably haven't spent their whole lives in Jerusalem. They may have been born and raised in like a different area of the Roman Empire and somehow have ended up back in Jerusalem, but they probably don't speak Aramaic. They probably can't read Hebrew. Maybe if they've been bar mitzvah, but that's actually, never mind. Um, uh, the the Hellenized Jews are Jewish, they do care about the temple, they do care about Jerusalem, they now have also been converted to Jesus, but there's such a rift that's not healed by Jesus. At least not immediately, not magically, not just with a snap of the fingers, there is such a rift between the Jews and the Hellenized Jews that as the early church once again is like, look at us, Look at our sharing of our excess and how we take care of each other. We're, we're feeding the widows. We're fathering the orphans. We're taking care of each other just like the ethics of Jesus would have had us do. All of a sudden, in the daily distribution of the food and the money and the things that we need to live, the Hellenized Jews, their widows, are being explicitly ignored. And a little bit of what you make of what happens next, um, we probably read into the text a little bit, but what happens next is the original apostles of Jesus, these 11 plus they've cast lots and they've added another 12, uh, 12, they're like, hey guys, the most important thing for us is prayer, not taking care of poor people. So yeah, there's this like starving widows problem, like yeah, I get it, Um, but get somebody else to solve it. the original followers of Jesus, who are the closest people to Jesus, who are the, like, corners, the foundation of the church, yes, devote themselves to prayer, and there's something, like, really beautiful about that, but they end up abdicating their responsibility to the impoverished and instead appoint new leaders, and what happens for basically the rest of Acts is all of a sudden they start appointing these new seven leaders, and we call them maybe, like, the first deacons, Um, And and they come and they, they appoint these new leaders. What we see throughout the rest of the book of Acts is it's these leaders that have the spirit of Jesus upon them that work in the power of Jesus and start doing the things that we expect the apostles of Jesus to do. Like the apostles start receding into the background and the people who are appointed, these seven, get raised up and get apparently anointed with the Holy Spirit in powerful and beautiful ways. Okay, so let, let, me, let me recap a little bit more briefly. Chapter 5. There's such hypocrisy in the church about this beautiful sharing economy that they have. There's, there's lying about it, and apparently God kills a couple of people about, uh, over it. Despite the celebratory nature of this, um, you know, this, this beautiful new kind of community, um, things are bad enough that some of the widows are still starving just because they're not of the right ethnic class the church leaders, instead of taking care of this, they're like, well, we're gonna take care of it, but really we're gonna appoint a new panel to take care of it. And God raises up these new seven, among whom is Stephen. Stephen is now filled with the Holy Spirit and preaches this fiery, Pentecost-like, beautiful sermon in chapter seven. And at the end of chapter seven, all the people who hear this beautiful, fiery, Pentecost-like sermon get together and make Stephen the first martyr. They kill him for it. Right? So, so, th- so this church that says, we worship the one true God. We worship the one God who's older than the sun. We worship the God who made all things. In him we live and move and have our brain being. This God that we worship, he raises up people when he needs people. And oh yeah, apparently he can't keep some of our best people from dying. Okay, now I'm, I'm let, me, let me point out, I'm, I'm not mischaracterizing this per se, but I'm mischaracterizing this just a little bit, right? I'm, I'm characterizing this in a little bit of a cynical lens. My, my point is how we characterize things in our own lives whether we're talking about personal realm, professional realm, church realm, like whatever realm of our life we're thinking about, how we characterize things is often a matter of interpretation. How the early church would have characterized these things is also a matter of interpretation. And Luke doesn't give us a whole lot about that except for summary statements like chapter 9, verse 31. But when we look at this, we're like, God, this is actually really bad. There's awful hypocrisy, there's racism, And our best leaders that God is raising up are apparently being killed. Now, the beautiful thing that happens in chapter 7 after Stephen gets killed, right? This new, like, spirit-filled, beautiful, awesome, Jesus-like leader preaches this fiery sermon, and then they kill him for it. You know who kills him for it? Saul. Well, Saul doesn't directly kill him for it, but Saul stands there and applauds and then decides, hey, I'm going to go, I'm going to figure out how to kill a lot more Christians just like this. And he goes and he gets official permission slip from like the rulers and authorities that he can start going around the region throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria and rounding up the Christians so that he can kill more of them. Saul is there at the stoning of Stephen And yet, somehow, Jesus miraculously miraculously breaks into Saul's life and saves Saul, right? There's something beautiful, miraculous, awesome about this. In this moment, we're like, how's the church? And they're like, we had one great new leader. Apparently, they died. Now, we have a new great leader. It's awesome. We have Saul. Now, Saul, for those of you, you probably know this a little bit. Saul, we also call Paul. Sometimes there's a little bit of confusion. We think he's Saul before his conversion. He's Paul after his conversion. That's actually right. That's not actually the way that it works because Acts keeps talking about him as Saul. What's happening here is Saul is his Roman name, Uh, Saul is his Jewish name and Paul is his Roman name and in different contexts he's called one or the other in a Jewish context they keep calling him Saul that's the name that's natural for them that's the name they know him by but as he heads to Rome as he starts dealing with the Gentiles they call him Paul which apparently means tiny Um, okay right so new leader Saul is raised up And then we finally get to um, our context that I started here with this morning, um, back in Acts chapter 9. So after Saul gets converted, he starts going around and saying, I was going to kill all of you Jesus followers, but now I've met Jesus, and that dude's awesome. And he starts evangelizing, and everybody's like, uh, can we take you seriously? Like, you were going to kill us for this? And now suddenly you've had a change of heart and like, and and they don't know what to make of it. And finally some people vouch for him and Saul starts doing some like miraculous, beautiful, like good gospel work. People are coming to meet Jesus because of this message of Saul. And yet then what happens is in multiple cities, the Jewish folks, right? So at first the Christians are not gonna kill Saul But they're terrified of him and not quite sure if they want to let him in their churches or not. When they finally realize, oh, this guy's legit, he's met Jesus, he has the Spirit, and Jesus is working through him, I don't know what to say other than amazing grace. Saul starts doing his work and he starts converting a bunch of Jews around him except there's always a couple of the Jews around him who are mad about it and they decide, nah, this ain't it, man. We're gonna kill him. And and they keep trying to kill him over and over. So what happens is there are such murderous plots against Saul that they have run him out of multiple cities. Such murderous plots against him where he's had to escape by night. Like, running out of a window, let down in a basket, like, under cover of darkness. Like, you know, uh, James Bond kind of stuff. There's assassination attempts. Like, they're going to take him out. This is not good. I wonder if I were there in the early church, and I I got to write one verse. I got to write Acts 9.31, according to Zach McCoy. I wonder how I would have summarized, how's the church? Well, God's killing our hypocrites. Our best leaders are dying. Our new leaders, miraculous, but also they're being run out of town. There's some racism problems we still hadn't dealt with. I don't know. How are things? I wonder how you'd summarize. Right after I resigned last week, people are like, hey, so uh, how's church? <laughs> Better than ever. <laughs> right? How's your home life? How are your friendships? How's work? You see, I think we end up... I think we end up evaluating on the wrong axis. We need to, like, reorient our... Like, not to be too mathy about this. Um, I think basically our definition of winning in all of these things comes down to, do I want to be really positive or do I want to be really negative? I love our crying babies. Hmm. Don't worry. Um, I think there's this implicit pressure that most of us have felt around the church and we look at Acts chapter 9, verse 31, and we're like, well, Luke says everything's great. They got Jesus, everything's great. And I think we internalize that. Like, if we just stop the sermon here, I really think the conclusion that most of y'all would jump to is basically, well, Luke was still really positive about the church. I should just be more positive. And like we end up in a Monty Python sketch where they're hanging on the cross, singing "Always look on the bright side of life," right? Which is just like this perfect, cynical moment. I've never seen Monty Python, and I know this sketch, and it's wonderful. Um, because I think the implicit pressure in the church, over and over and over, how's life? How's church? How's work? I think we take statements like this, Acts 9.31, and we take them out of context, and we're like, well, things were clearly bad there, but he says they're great, so I guess I'm supposed to lie, too. Or maybe we don't view it as lying. Maybe we're softer about it. We're like, well, I don't want to lie, but uh, I still got Jesus. And we, like, oversimplify things. Or maybe for a bunch of us, we're like, things are really terrible, but I think I probably can't tell anyone around me, particularly in my Christian circles, that they're terrible. Because as soon as I tell people in my Christian circles that they're terrible, they're going to say, well, you're not a very good Christian then, are you? So um, I'm preaching today, and I'm preaching my last sermon in two weeks. Uh, so Brandon's been kind. Um, I'm still, like, technically in charge, but sort of he's in charge. Um, it's this weird, like, month we have here where, where I'm handing off. Um, but he's, he's created this series and figured out, like, here's what I, what I think the church needs and wants for us, and um, he's, he's done great. But he's also given me a little bit of, like, time and space and room and just said, hey, Zach, what do you want to preach for your last two? And I'm like... Okay, sweet. Um, And and I love that that he picked Acts because if he could, if if I could pick um, any two sermons to preach, one of them would be this one. One of them would be Acts chapter nine, verse thirty one. Right. In fact, I love this this text so much, and I I haven't shown you why I I love it yet, but let me build up the drama here for just a minute. I love this text so much that over the years, as I got invited to like church planner boot camps, where we're like training like prospective and potential new church planners, and they're like, hey Zach, what do you want to teach us? Or hey Zach, we have this thing that that we want you to teach, but you can kind of make it your own and teach it however you want. Like over and over and over, what I taught every church planner I could, Was Acts nine thirty one? I guess the question is okay, so why? (laughs) My own life, um, is life like most of y'all's are. Right? meaning there's good parts and there's hard parts. Sometimes I feel like there's way more hard parts than there's good parts. Then we find ourselves asking, wait, am I just being like negative? Am I just being too gloomy? Do I not love Jesus enough? In fact, sometimes for me at least, maybe for some of y'all, it becomes a little bit more um, theologically pointed than that. It's not just, well, would I be more positive if I loved Jesus more? But I, I actually start to ask, wait, would my life be easier? Would things be going better if I just love Jesus more? Would like all of this not be such a mess if like I was just more faithful, if I was just more prayerful, if I was just a better Christian in whatever sense? Maybe, if, if we're like really in a bad place, um, we ask it even, even a little bit harsher than that, which is, does God hate me? And I wonder how often you find yourself asking questions like that. Right, when your house is flooded, you wake up in the middle of the night and all of a sudden you hear your bulldog splashing and you're like, don't remember putting a pool in my bedroom. And all of a sudden, there's just water in your whole house. You're like, okay, I guess we're flooding. And then you fix your house. You're back in it for five months, and it floods again. You're like, does God hate me? I mean, I say you, but this is like literally what happened for my wife and me, um, our second year of planning here at Redemption when you go through years of infertility, when you have miscarriages, when people around you are dropping dead, when your financial plans aren't working out the way that you wanted them to, when you have car wrecks, when things at the church are hard, when there's COVID, when there's loneliness, when there's isolation, when there's burnout. I think in all of these Very significant and yet very common moments of life. Basically, we reveal to ourselves how we define winning. On two two counts. One is, well, this isn't winning, this sucks. The other is, wait, I'm not sure if I'm doing the things that have to do with winning and therefore God is punishing me. Right, so, so this clearly isn't winning because I'm, I'm suffering. But maybe I wouldn't be suffering so much if I redefined my winning and was just more Christian about my definition of winning. And then I would actually win in the way that I need to win. And like somehow within us, this, this question of success, goals, meaning, winning really gets squeezed out In the heavy, hard moments of life, and so I love Acts nine thirty one because it's despite the fact that we pull it out of context, like we make it our theme at conferences, we make it like an annual theme for our church. Like as long as we have this, we're going to multiply. We're going to blow up. And then we kind of like adapt that to our lives of God will give you all the fullness you need if you will just like do this. And we, just, we kind of take it out of context. Despite the fact that we take it out of context, Luke put it exactly in context. Right? Like Luke has both of the things at once. Things are really, really hard. There's hypocrisy, there's racism, and there's death, and there's suffering. And sometimes we're not sure if we're on the right path or not. And also, the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up, going on in the fear of the Lord, in the comfort of the Spirit. It continued to increase. Okay, so I want to come back um, and I want to break apart a couple of these pieces because I think there is hope for us. If, if we will come to the place of acknowledging, which is a little scary for some of you, but if we will acknowledge sometimes life is really heavy, sometimes life is really hard, and sometimes I'm not sure if Jesus really loves me. Sometimes I'm not sure if I'm on the right path. Sometimes I'm not sure if I'm messing all of this up. Sometimes I'm just not sure what winning looks like. I want to come back to... Acts 9:31 cuz I don't think Luke is mischaracterizing things. I think he is exactly rightly characterizing things and I think he's got the secrets of life buried here in Acts 9:31 particularly when things are really hard. So they enjoyed peace. Right? You all know biblical word for peace is Shalom. Like Old Testament picture of Shalom is fullness. There's my uh, my favorite quote from uh, the early church is this guy who is like best friends for, with Jesus. Um, one of his disciples told one of his disciples, well, it didn't make it into the scriptures, but one of the things Jesus used to talk about is in the day of glory, when resurrection comes and things are finally fixed, let me tell you what that shalom is going to look like. So so this is kind of like an apocryphal story from Jesus. Apparently it's a true story. It's also not in the scriptures. Make of it what you will. But apparently Jesus would describe the day of the coming day of Shalom this way. He said, "On that day, every tree out there will have 10,000 branches. And every big branch of those 10,000 branches will have 10,000 little branches." And every one of those ten thousand little branches will have ten thousand shoots, and every one of those ten thousand shoots will have ten thousand uh, clusters of grapes, and or fruit or grapes or you know this translational stuff here every one of those clusters those 10,000 clusters will have 10,000 grapes and every one of those grapes when you take it off the vine and, and start to squeeze it and take the juice out of it will shout at you and say no, no, no take me instead bless the Lord through me so 10,000 of 10,000 of 10,000 of 10,000 of 10,000 and all of a sudden you're grabbing the one and every one will produce 10,000 gallons of the choicest best wine and as you squeeze it the other grapes around will say no choose me bless the lord through me okay this story is probably metaphorical right Uh, probably not literal but the metaphor is exactly the right picture of shalom when we talk about what is biblical peace, it's not just the absence of conflict. It is the world operating the way that it is meant to. With like flourishing and thriving and beauty and glory and things that are right in like the rightest way. The God who is a blessing God, who is a giving God, who is a joyful God, who is a God of delight and abundance. As he makes this world completely right, this world is going to be a world of delight and abundance. That's what shalom is. When Luke here is talking about peace, he's talking about the biblical concept of shalom. So he says, somehow, in the midst of all of this, from the outside, you might think it's terrible, with the hypocrisy and the racism and the death and all of the, oh my God, where is Jesus? They still somehow have the fullness of shalom because they are being built up together. Now, this word built up is, it's, they're being, um, the, the verb comes from the word for house, they're being house built together. The, the reason that I point this out is this is not an individualistic term. Right? Several times in this passage, we, we, we are beaten over the head with the idea that this is not going to come for us as individuals. This is going to come for us only as a community. That happens, one, because it's talking about the church. It doesn't say every individual had shalom as an isolated individual. It says the church had shalom, as it was brick by brick, person by person, assembled together, built up, built together. It walked, it went on, in the fear of Jesus, in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and therefore it continued to increase. Now, I want to color that word increase and built up with the word shalom, but let's like, actually camp out here for just one minute on fear and comfort. Because these are the two things that for all of the rest of, how's life? Am I winning? How's church? How's work? How's my home life? The reason that I love this passage so much is it finally struck me deeply in my soul. Oh my word, this is exactly right. I don't just have to be fakely positive. I don't just have to pretend things are great when they're not great. I can tell you things are not great And I can also, even when they're not great, I can also still have the fear of Jesus and the comfort of the Spirit. And if I have the fear of Jesus and the comfort of of the Spirit, then regardless of the rest of the situation and the rest of my circumstances and the rest of life and the rest of suffering and the rest of pain, as long as I have the fear of Jesus and the comfort of the Spirit, I can literally do all things. I can do anything. I can survive it all. Wait, so actually, there's no set of circumstances that if you take fear of Jesus and comfort of spirit, if you take those away, there's no set of circumstances, no matter how good those circumstances might be, that I will ever choose. And conversely, there is no set of circumstances so bad, no matter how painful no matter how long they drag on, no matter how awful those circumstances are, there is no set of circumstances that I will not choose as long as I have the fear of Jesus and the comfort of the Spirit. This is what Luke is talking about. He says, things feel like they're falling apart, and yet, you know what? We have shalom. We are starting to taste this. There is something powerful and beautiful, and when you write your books, I guess Luke is the one writing your books, but as, as you talk for the next couple thousand years about what the early church was like, as you talk about, hey, if we could only be like that early church, if we could just get back there, How do we do it? How do we get back there? How do we recapture some of the magic in those early days? It boils down to fear of Jesus and comfort of the spirit. Is Jesus here? Is the spirit here? If we have those two things, everything else will fall into place. Actually, maybe everything else will fall apart. But even in that, we will say, glory, glory, hallelujah, Now, we'll only say that because we actually believe in a Jesus who's going to re- resurrect and fix all things because we know that this night doesn't last forever, that things are actually going to be fixed. We're not just like nihilists. But we are so convinced that all things are going to be fixed partially because we have the present and ongoing reality of the fear of Jesus and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. So, so here, here's my challenge. to Literally every, every one of us here today Do you have the fear of Jesus and do you have the actual comfort of the Holy Spirit? I think most of us don't experience anything like the Acts Church did mostly because we have given up on the fear of Jesus and we have convinced ourselves that the comfort of the Holy Spirit is just an idea. Can, can I define what I mean by each of these? Fear of Jesus and comfort of the Spirit? Fear of Jesus, I'm not talking like terror. Like if Jesus showed up here, I'd just be like, oh no! Not Jesus! Right? That's, that's bad. Hopefully that's not what we mean by fear of Jesus. Um. I think this is Luke's shorthand for saying, hey, the ethics of the kingdom, like the ways of Jesus, the the church had bought into that. Not perfectly, not universally, not in every situation, but they were, with their best, trying to live into the upside-down kingdom. They were trying to live with self-giving love, they were trying to live with mercy and humility. They were trying to follow Jesus in their everything. That's what the fear of Jesus is. I wonder, for those of us, well, I wonder for all of us, not just some of us, not just those of us with qualification, but for all of us, I wonder, are there areas In any of your realms, church life, professional life, home life, mental life, spiritual life, physical life? Are there areas where you've just given up on the ways of Jesus? On the self giving way? On the way of sacrifice and love? On the way of humility and mercy? on the way of smallness. The early church was okay. Not because everything was okay. They were okay because they were still 100% bought into the actual ways of Jesus. This is why Luke uses this weird word. It says they, they went on in the fear of Jesus. They continued walking in the path of Jesus in the ethics of Jesus, they kept acting like his way was right, like his weakness was really true power, like his shame was really true glory. And finally, do you know that the comfort of the Holy Spirit is not just an idea, it's not just a hypothetical, it's not just a fact. It can be an active, lived reality for every single one of us in this auditorium. You can know, you can be filled with, you can experience direct comfort from the God who made the cosmos. The God who made up the idea of comfort. Actually, a little bit more precisely, the God whose very being Gives rise to our notion of comfort in the first place. Because something about his nature is the very essence of comfort. That God of comfort can be known by you. You don't have to just think about him. You don't have to just check a box of, yeah, I'm Christian. Yeah, I believe in Jesus. Yeah, I can pass the pop quiz at the end of all things and get all the theology questions right. No, the early church was okay even when things weren't okay because they had the reality of the Holy Spirit. Because when Jesus said, hey, I'm going to leave for a bit, but don't go anywhere. Sit here and wait until the Holy Spirit falls upon you. And they're like, wait, so we just, like, wait? We have jobs. And they devoted themselves to waiting, to praying, to insisting, to asking, to begging, to pleading. God, if you were there, God, if any of this is actually true, God, if this isn't just stories, if it's not just ethics, if it's not just... Hypotheticals, if this is lived reality, would you show up? Would you pour out your Holy Spirit upon us? And Luke, for all the hypocrisy, for all the death, for all the racism, for all the disaster that the early church was in so many senses. He says, everything's not okay, but I promise it's okay because we are still walking in the way of Jesus and we are still clinging to the reality of the comfort of the Holy Spirit who's among us. I feel him, I know him, I see him, I taste him, I'm filled with him, I'm renewed with him, I walk in step with him, I'm made alive with him, my desires are changed by him, I pray with him every day, I listen to him, I know him, we have actual comfort of the Holy Spirit, and everything's not okay, but everything is absolutely okay, we are really and truly winning. I want this to be my mission statement. In my work, at the church, in my personal life, am I winning? Am I doing enough? Am I doing it right? Have I angered God? Am I walking in the ways of Jesus to the best of my ability? And am I never giving up on the actual expectation of direct comfort from God's Holy Spirit? I think I can do that. I think you can do that, regardless of circumstances and situations. Literally every one of you in here can do this. And if we will do this together, God will build us up. And we will have at least a slice of shalom. Maybe not the whole pie yet, but a slice would be nice. will you try it this week? Will you look at your life and try to make a list of, hey, here are the ways that I don't think I'm living in kingdom ways? And would you just ruthlessly eliminate anything that's in your life that's not living according to the ways of Jesus? And then would you gather all of your courage to put some of your cynicism and fear at bay for just a moment and would you sit and wait and pray God I need comfort from your Holy Spirit if I have that what else could I lack if I have that everything's going to be okay if I have that even Redemption Church is going to be okay let's pray God I need you this morning we need you not just in word and talk but in deed and in truth would you forgive us would you give us back your presence would you give us actual comfort not just guilt and pressure that we should feel comforted not just a command be comforted but God with your very being would you reach into the inner being of every one of us Would you wrap us up? Would you fill us with your comfort? Would you pour your love into us that we might know your delight, your joy, your affection, and your love? God, I need that right now. I need that every day this week. Would you help me? Would you help us? Would you hear us and be with us as we sing? In Jesus' name we pray.
0: Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, get coffee with a pastor or visit us on a Sunday, then go to H O U. And please know today that you are fully loved and fully accepted just the way you are. We hope to hear from you soon.